There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Lila Costani. Before I go into her intro, for those of you who are just listening, she fell into my trap and I said some of our guests like to dance in the beginning of the show. And so she put some great moves on there. So I want to thank you for that, Lila. Actually, you're not the first, but I appreciate the, appreciate you doing that. When I think about resiliency, personal empowerment, and leadership through adversity, I can't help but think about Lila. And on this one-year anniversary of the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, I can think of no better guest to have with us than her. Lila Kostani came to this country in the 1980s as a small child whose family fled the Russian assault of Afghanistan. Her parents, brother, and Lila had to integrate into a country and culture they knew little about and faced challenges that few of us experience. She went on to join the United States Navy and was a surface warfare officer stationed in Japan. As an African-American, the attacks on 9-11 prompted her to transfer into the intelligence community, where she served as a counterterrorism analyst in Afghanistan, working alongside U.S. and NATO Special Operations Forces. Today, she's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Forward Defense Program under the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. She's an inclusion strategist and cultural intelligence advisor. She also consults the U.S. Special Operations Command as a senior cultural advisor for Afghanistan. And Lila has leadership roles in not one, but two nonprofits. She's the CEO and co-founder of Honor the Promise, which is focused on resettling our Afghan special operations allies, they're rebuilding their lives here in the U.S., and president and co-founder of Promote, a nonprofit focused on inclusive mentorship and leadership development in the national security sector. Lila, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's honored to be here. So before we start, I've been doing this show for two years now. So we're, we're up, I think this is show number 97, 98. I have never had a guest that's taken up the entire first page of my notes in terms of their background and, and what they do and what they've done. So we'll get into all you've done and how you do it later on the show, but just wanted to, to compliment you and all that you do it. It's just tremendous. So just honored to have you here today. That's kind of you to say, Chris. Thank you. You were not quite three years old when you came to America. Why did your family flee your native country? And how was it that you ended up in the United States instead of another country? So my father was enlisted in the Afghan army in the 1970s. Yes, there was an Afghan army in the 1970s. And he was very proud of his service. And when the Soviets invaded, he spoke out against the Soviet occupation. He was imprisoned for some time. And when he was finally released, he knew that he didn't want me and my brother and my mom to live in that type of oppression. And so thankfully, my dad was fairly well educated. He spoke multiple languages, English being one of them. And he had some friends who had already sought refuge in the United States. And so they helped us get to the U.S., spent a little bit of time in a refugee camp in Peshawar, Pakistan, about six months uh, while we awaited all of our paperwork and everything to go through. But we eventually made it to the U.S. in December of 1982. 
And what was your experience as an Afghan refugee growing up in the United States? It was difficult to say the least. Uh, I think for my, my father, because he spoke English, it was a bit easier, but my brother was 10 and he was just thrown into school and told essentially to figure it out, which with uh, the help of some really fantastic teachers who were willing to invest more time in him, you know, he eventually joined the military and is retired now living a great life. But it, it really took a lot of effort on the part of the entire family to, to integrate. Me being three, it was pretty easy for me, but my mother, uh, my mother never truly integrated. Press. She never learned how to speak English. She was very sad to leave Afghanistan, to leave her family behind. Um, and that, that really is, is a huge reason why I'm so focused on helping our Afghan special, uh, special operations partners with resettlement today is because I saw the challenges that my family faced, but also that with support and with help, you can overcome those challenges and find a really prosperous path. You mentioned your brother not speaking English or not very good English. You mentioned your mother uh, really not wanting to be here because she left her family. You also said you were three years old when you got here. The things you kind of rolled with it. What were your biggest challenges personally and how'd you overcome them? My biggest challenges were living in two different cultural worlds. So at home, I was told to speak Dari every day, to be hyper-religious, uh, because I think my parents were afraid that I was going to lose this connection to Afghanistan. And I think they were very saddened by that potential loss. And so at home, it was essentially a microcosm of if we were still living in Kabul, and then I'm also this young girl trying to find my way as an American. And so trying to bring those two identities together was really, really difficult. And I think there were moments when my mom was like, I'm really glad that you are becoming more American, but that doesn't mean you can talk back to me. <laughs> and, then, and then there were moments where you know, at the exact same time, they were, they were just very, very concerned about, well, what if we're not going to make it in the United States and we go back to Afghanistan? Like, how are you going to integrate back into that society? Obviously, that never happened. We stayed in the U.S., but uh, truly, and I think this is an important message for all of our listeners, is my parents didn't want to leave Afghanistan. Refugees don't choose to leave their countries. Immigration is very different, but being a refugee, it's out of fear. It's out of necessity. You know, there was always a point for them where they had hoped that we would go back. Um, and so with that, the biggest challenge was how do I be both people? How do I respect both cultures? How do I make my parents happy and proud while also creating an identity for myself as an American? You followed your father and your brother in the military service. As you mentioned, your father was in the Afghan army. Your brother was a corpsman in the United States Navy. What was it about the military that drew you to it? 
I think this is probably true for most immigrants and refugees, Chris, but we want to serve the nation that has taken us in. And it's, I think, a profound way of giving back and showing your gratitude is to join the U.S. military. And so it's why my brother did it. You know, he couldn't join the Afghan military because we were obviously at that point firmly ingrained into American society. And I, I saw what the military did for him. I'll try to keep this story fairly brief, but when I was 12, my father had actually arranged my marriage back in Afghanistan to a man who was 51 years old. And because my older brother was already in the Navy, he was 19 at the time, he was already enlisted as a corpsman. This did not sit well with him as someone who was raised in the United States. And he brought it up to his Navy commander. And she said, go get your sister. We'll figure out the rest of it. Don't don't let your dad take her back to Afghanistan. And so the Navy quite literally saved my life because when my father went on that trip to Afghanistan, he was working for the United Nations Education Sciences and Cultural Organization, UNESCO at the time, he was murdered on that trip and I would have been with him. Uh, And so the Navy gave a 19 year old young man the confidence and the resources to be able to take care of his 12 year old sister. So there was never a question in my mind that I was gonna end up joining the US military and I'm incredibly proud of my service and I, recommend military service to pretty much everyone that I talk to. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I know it's very personal for you. And ironically enough, you talk about your recommendation for the military. Next week, we have uh, General George Casey coming on talking about the all-volunteer force. And so uh, that's a good plug. I'll make sure he's aware of that as well. (laughs) Uh, So good, uh, good public service announcement there for the military. So what does a service warfare officer actually do in the Navy? You know, how did you become one and how'd you end up in Japan? I became a surface warfare warfare officer because it was frankly the quickest path to becoming a lawyer. So I initially wanted to be like Tom Cruise and Kevin Bacon and Demi Moore from A Few Good Men and become a JAG, a Judge Advocate General. as, As a child growing up, just always was attracted to the law. And I think part of it was because I was a refugee, right? And understanding how the law worked and being able to use it um, to protect yourself, to protect others, to advocate, right, at scale. And when I got commissioned into the U.S. Navy out of Penn State through an ROTC, a Reserve Officer Training Corps scholarship, my choices were to go into the broader Department of the Navy as a Marine. Chris, you know me, I only run when I'm chased. So that was not going to work out. (laughs) And at that time, submarines were not open to women and my eyesight was shot. And so I couldn't go into the pilot or the naval flight officer community. But I really wanted to become a lawyer. And so when I asked senior leaders at at Penn State, said, really, if, if I go surface warfare, if I go and learn how to drive ships, can I eventually become a lawyer? And they said, sure. Yeah, you do a couple of years as a surface warfare officer, you get all of your qualifications on a ship, and then you can apply for a lateral transfer into the Judge Advocate General Corps. And Chris, that was my plan. So I, I 
took a tour in Japan. I wanted to travel. I joined the Navy to be able to travel. It's one of the best things about the military is you definitely get to see a lot of the world. Uh, but I was at Surface Warfare Officer School in Newport, Rhode Island when 9-11 happened. And so that is what took me off of the career trajectory to go into law. Uh, and instead, I went to Japan. I drove ships for two years. It was an amazing experience. I absolutely loved it. The SWO community eats its own, though, and it has to give $100,000 bonuses for people to stay. So that should tell you there's a little bit of an issue going on in the community in terms of how it treats people. But I absolutely loved driving a ship. As someone from a landlocked country, I love the water. It was great. But I knew pretty much right then and there when the attacks happened that when we found out there was a connection to Afghanistan and there were so many people who said you should probably leave the legal pathway behind and, and maybe go into the intel community. So as someone who's been in several, I don't want to say heated, but tense conversations with you, I think you, <laughs> I think you would have, I think you would have been an awesome lawyer. So, but Aww. I understand things happen for a reason. Thank so you, Chris. <laughs> you talk about 9-11 happening. How easy and you, you transferred here, not from becoming a JAG, but to something else into counterterrorism. How easy or hard was it to get into counterterrorism? It was it was easy for me, Chris, but I think that's because of my particular background and language capabilities and cultural understanding that it 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 was it was fairly easy. I I asked for the lateral transfer to the Intel community. My commanding officer was incredibly supportive. When I went to Intel school, I had fantastic instructors that understood the potential value that I could bring into that field. And I volunteered for a deployment with Joint Special Operations Command in 2005. And it was a phenomenal deployment. And some of the people that I met doing counterterrorism work from 2005 are still some of my closest friends today. And so I would say I'm not the best person to talk about how easy it would be for the average American to join, because in that moment, I was not average. I was very different. And it was that difference that the special operations community respected and wanted to bring in uh, as, as part of their capabilities. It was the fact that I was from Afghanistan and could speak the language and was Muslim and understood the culture. Uh, it, it was that unique package uh, that they sought. And it's part of why I love the special operations community so much. You mentioned your deployment to Afghanistan. And when you were there, you're working alongside US and the special forces. Now, I know there are details that you can't share, but to the extent you can, what did your work entail? Day to day at that point, Chris, we were very focused as, as, a, as a country on counterterrorism. And so it really was on who are the terrorists that mean to, the, to do the United States and our allies harm. We were not as focused on the Taliban back then. Uh, it really wasn't a resurgent insurgency at that point. And so I really was focused on primarily Al-Qaeda targets. And so trying to locate those targets, trying to collect information and intelligence about those targets, 
um, and of course provide those to other types of people uh, who would go out and conduct operations. And that's about all I'll say, if that's okay. <laughs> we can read between the lines. I appreciate that. Thank you. So as mentioned earlier, this is the one year anniversary of the very sudden US withdrawal from Afghanistan. So let's set the stage first. Last summer, the Taliban began to take over large areas of Afghanistan, and then suddenly they're on the doorstep of the capital, Kabul. How did the Taliban overpower Afghan government forces that were trained and spent billions of dollars to arm and support? Chris, I've heard a couple of people say that the Afghan security forces didn't have the will to fight or that they're not good fighters. You can ask anybody who's actually deployed in Afghanistan and they will tell you that's not true. <laughs> so especially on the Afghan special operations side, uh, there, are, there are a lot of really amazing, amazing stories of heroism that come out of our US and our Afghan special operations being partnered on the battlefield. And no one really wants to, uh, to talk about this, but the issue is not one of the will to fight, it's about logistics. And if you've ever heard military people talk about combat, we often say that logistics is the PhD level. So you can get a lot of equipment into a country, it's really hard to get things out of a country. And so when we, when we as a country made the decision to leave Afghanistan, um, we had not really thought through how do we create a logistics pipeline that is sustainable. And so this is true. This is factual. I have photos to back this up. People were not being fed at their bases. Wasn't enough food. Uh, we had created a system that was very heavily centralized and where we could not get resources out to the forces on the ground. And so I say this with a lot of love and a lot of respect to our forces who are like, yeah, it's, it's kind of shocking. I'm like, hey man, if you didn't have food being dropped, if you didn't have weapons, if you didn't have ammo, uh, what would happen to you in, in a firefight? And so I, I think that when we hear about the Taliban taking over so rapidly, it's not because the Afghans just all of a sudden were like, this isn't worth it. Uh, it's they quite literally didn't have the logistics to be able to continue fighting. And then Chris, I will also say that if there was a blow to morale, which I believe that there was, that much of it in my conversations when I talk to Afghan Special Operations Forces, they do talk about how the Doha agreement was a huge psychological blow to them, right? So knowing that the United States had negotiated with the Taliban for the Taliban to be able to take control of, of parts of the, of, the, of the government, parts of the country, um, that obviously did not sit well with them. And so I... I guess my long way of, of describing this is it's not just one thing that happened. There are a series of events here um, that led to crushed morale and then just not having the materials at the local level to be able to continue fighting. As my listeners and viewers know, we don't get into politics here. And you and I discussed it last week when we had a little quick little catch up on the call. 
President Biden ordered the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan on August 15th of last year. Were you surprised by that decision and its timeline? Not at all. And the reason I say that, Chris, is because I have heard of pretty much every president talking about leaving Afghanistan in some way. Uh, and so when Americans told me that they were shocked by it and when Afghans told me that they were shocked by it, I respect that that's how they feel, but I was never shocked by that decision. Um, I, I think that every administration has in some way sought to extricate the United States from Afghanistan for good reason. I mean, they talk about it in The Princess Bride. You should never get involved in a land war in Asia. That is correct. Uh, and so Afghanistan is not a place that is friendly to outsiders. It just never has been. And so I understand it, but um, I, I was not shocked by it. And I frankly find it a little bit shocking that other people thought that we would just stay there in perpetuity. I do agree with many of the recommendations and the assessments that it would have been prudent to leave about 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. We have tens of thousands of troops in many other parts of the world where we have national interests. And so I would have, I would have preferred to have seen some small troop level, but I was not shocked by the administration's desire to actually close this chapter on Afghanistan. We have a lot of firsts on this show, and you just had another one. You're the first person to ever quote The Princess Bride in the show, so I, I love that. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> should quote The Princess Bride. Absolutely agree. On a podcast. And if Absolutely you're not, you're agree. probably not living right. <laughs> so we know that the U.S. and Western countries are now out of Afghanistan. The Taliban is in. What does the Taliban victory mean for the country of Afghanistan and its people, and more importantly, in particular, to its women? It's a massive blow to, to the people of Afghanistan. It is. There are, of course, many Afghans that want the Taliban in power. If that wasn't the case, then they would not be able to enjoy the, the sanctuary and the safe haven that they have for, for so many years and the, and the support in many parts of Afghanistan. Rural Afghanistan, there have been many Afghans that have wanted the Taliban uh, to be in power, but for educated Afghans, for Afghans in the cosmopolitan, metropolitan parts of the country, for the urbane Afghans, it is, it is a massive blow to their hopes for themselves, for their children, um, and for women. I, I cannot imagine how it must feel for those women to from one day be able to go to work, to go to school, to provide for their families, uh, to all of a sudden being told that they essentially can't leave the home without a male escort, that they have to wear a burqa every day. I imagine that they feel imprisoned, that they feel caged, that they feel oppressed. Um, as my family members who lived under the Taliban expressed to me and to, and to others. And so it is, it, it is a massive blow um, and perhaps Perhaps something that we as the United States should also consider is that it's a boon for the other insurgent groups and terrorist networks in the world. I think it, it emboldens them and it does 
give us a bit a bit of a black eye when we're thinking about our messaging in the future. I've talked to multiple multiple folks in the in the U.S. military that have said uh, that what happened with Afghanistan, what is happening with Afghanistan, they they're actually very worried about the next time they deploy in another part of the world, right? About how our partners will receive us, how the local population will receive us. Can we be trusted based on what happened? And how long do you think the Taliban will remain in control of Afghanistan? I think they'll stay in control of Afghanistan until some country decides to send people back into Afghanistan, whether it's us or some other country, because I, I have no doubt that Afghanistan is a safe haven for terrorism, for terrorists. Uh, that's already been proven with the fact that Ayman al-Zwahiri was in Kabul. And I would not be shocked if there is another attack that receives global attention that emanated from Afghanistan. So I've heard this said by others, and I agree with it. The U.S. might be done with Afghanistan, but Afghanistan is not done with the United States. So uh, we we have the United States has a history with Afghanistan dating back to the 1950s when President Eisenhower went to Afghanistan. Right. We worked together to fight a common enemy of the Soviets in the 1970s and 1980s. And at some point, I see us being involved in that conflict, perhaps not boots on the ground, but, but in some way, Afghanistan will end up being on the minds of, of Americans on a routine basis again. It's, it's cyclical. 70 to 80% of the Afghanistan government's budget has been funded historically by international donors. How the Taliban finance government functions, including basic services, without that funding? What we're seeing, Chris, is they're having a very difficult time uh, right now, right? And we're seeing that the majority of the country is living below the poverty level, famine, drought. Uh, the earthquake that happened in Paktia showed that you know, the Taliban, they're, one could say they're, they're effective insurgents, but they're horrible at governing. <laughs> And so we've we've already seen that. I don't see a way in which the Taliban could actually govern effectively and be able to provide resources to its people without some type of agreement with the international community. I just don't see that. I think the Afghan people are going to be the ones that suffer the most because the Taliban will find a way to take care of their own, their own soldiers, their own troops, but the Afghan people are, are definitely going to suffer. There's, there's no way. I mean, even with narco-terrorism and drugs and, and weapons and all of that in, in the area, sure, there's money that you can make off of those illicit items, but not sustainably. And so I am very concerned about the future of Afghanistan economically and what that means for the average Afghan going forward. We've been talking to Lila Kostani, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. 
Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Lila Kostani. Lila is an Afghan-American who came to the U.S. as an infant. She's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Forward Defense Program under the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Lila also consults for the U.S. Special Operations Command as a senior cultural advisor for Afghanistan and is the co-founder, yes, of not one, but two nonprofits, Honor the Promise and Promote. Before we get into the next part of the conversation, where can people find out more about Honor the Promise and Promote? They can visit honorthepromise.vet, V-E-T. We are not veterinarians. We are a veteran-led organization. So honorthepromise.vet and the other nonprofit, Promote, Promote Leadership dot org. And we'll get into more of those two nonprofits shortly. But before the break, we were talking about the situation in Afghanistan in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal exactly one year ago today. Afghanistan has been a major source of narcotics over the years, especially opiates, uh, heroin, and methamphetamine. What happens on that front with the Taliban in control? I'll be honest, Chris, I'm definitely not an expert on this. But what I will share are just my very personal opinions in that I think the Taliban is going to be more and more focused on trying to diversify their funding sources instead of just focusing on what they have focused on in the past, uh, which was sort of that nexus between narcotics, terrorism, um, other illicit types of activities. We've heard everything from you know, illicit 
uh, mining and uh, timber smuggling. These are all of the different things that we have heard um, in the past. I, I think that they're also going to broaden out, branch out and create various partnerships and affiliations with other nefarious actors, both state and non-state, frankly. So uh, while I'm not an expert specifically on, on narcotics and narcoterrorism, of course, I can see it being a stable source of revenue for the Taliban, but it's not going to be enough for them to be able to run their government and pay all of their people and, and do what they say they want to do, which is to actually govern. So I think it'll be one small part, but we know that they have made a lot of money off of drugs in the past. So I can't see it going away, uh, but it also won't be the only game in town. There are many stories about Afghan refugees, but two really speak to their situation. The New York Times a few weeks ago shared the story of three Afghan military pilots who've mm -hmm. made it to the United States, but their families are trapped in Afghanistan and they might be there for years. The story notes that fast-track permanent residency was offered to Cubans in the 1960s and Southeast Asians in the 1970s, but a similar effort to help Afghan refugees has only just been introduced. In April of this year, the Shardsville, Virginia newspaper told the harrowing story of a 23-year-old woman who rushed from her home to the Hamid Karzai International Airport to deliver a passport to her sister, who worked for the Americans, and her husband, who was an engineer. The three of them miraculously made it to the United States they did so with only the clothes on their back. They had lives, professional careers, and possessions back home. Now they have nothing. But a volunteer helped them find part-time jobs at the grocery store and a place to live, which I guess is a place to start. What is our moral obligation as a country and as individual Americans to the Afghan refugees? What I, what I would love Americans to consider is that Afghans really have been in the fight with Americans since the 1970s. Truly, it's the reason I'm here, right? Is because my father hated the Soviet Union and wanted us to come to the United States because he saw this as a promised land. Not just because it was a place for economic prosperity, but because the values were more and so when, when Americans ask me like, Lila, you know, I, I understand why veterans care about Afghans, but like, why should I care about Afghans? Like they've kind of been fighting your fights with you <laughs> over the last 40 years. Like the United States hated the Soviet Union, so did Afghanistan, right? They're, tr go watch Charlie Wilson's War or better yet, just go watch Rambo Three. It's pretty much the same, right? Same ending, like we worked together to defeat the Soviets. And then when we look at, obviously, since 9-11, this time frame, Afghans have been fighting America's enemies. They have in every way possible, whether it's on a battlefield or with public activism or through education, the Afghans who stood next to us, who stood up with us, the reason why we should feel any kind of obligation is because they're born in Afghanistan, we're in the United States, but we're fighting the same enemies and we're fighting for the same values. And so I do think, Chris, that's why we've seen so many Americans step up to support. I think the American people have voted 
And what I mean by that is they stopped what they were doing in August to build out spreadsheets to help get Afghans manifested on planes. And then Americans all around the United States have sponsored and supported Afghans that have come in. So I think the American people recognize that the Afghan people have sacrificed, that they care about the same values, that our countries have a long history together. And for those Americans who might not, this is an opportunity for you to learn about that history, right? Having having tea, having uh, a meal with Afghans and getting to learn about why so many, so many Afghans were willing to risk their lives during the evacuation to get on a plane and come to the United States is because they do see this country as a brother or sister country, right? They see Americans as brothers and sisters. You've talked about what individual Americans have been doing. What should the U.S. government be doing specifically to help refugees who are already here in the United States? And what more should our elected officials be doing to help Afghans who are still in that country but want to come here? What I would really love to see the the government do to support Afghans that are already in the U.S. is to really champion public-private partnerships so that we can upskill and reskill the Afghans and get them into the workforce beyond working at a grocery store, beyond Uber and Lyft. I'm so grateful for all of the organizations and people that have helped Afghans get those initial jobs. Uh, But I want these Afghans who have tremendous capabilities and skills to actually contribute to our economy as quickly as possible and to find pride and purpose in what they're doing. So I don't think the government can do it on its own. I don't think the private industry can do it on its own. Um, I think that having that public-private partnership of the government being able to uplift these this particular population, but also for the employers to be willing to give them a little bit of time to really understand these new jobs and the new system. Uh, I, I see Afghans who are pilots, who are doctors, who are lawyers, and they're working minimum wage jobs. We should be leveraging the investments that we made in Afghanistan. Every single person that received an education in Afghanistan over the last 20 years and became a doctor or a lawyer or someone who served in the military, they did that because of US taxpayer dollars. Because our soldiers went out to help create an environment where people could be educated, where people could serve. And so when we talk about the moral obligation that Americans have to Afghans, there's also an obligation that the Afghans should feel. And what I mean by that is that they were able to build lives that they would not have been able to build under the Taliban. And so I want them to feel that sense of obligation of, let me use my skills to better humanity. And I think they do, Chris, that's my point. They want to use their skills. They're saying, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a pilot and be able to contribute. And we just need to help them actually make that happen. So I mentioned earlier, the show is a show of firsts and we're gonna do another first right now. And my producer, Eric, who's listening, I'm sure he's gonna be throwing his hands up in the air as I'm saying this, but we're gonna go off script. And he's saying, well, then what the hell did I put those notes together for, Chris? What do you have me for? Let's go. Let's focus on what's really where your passion is, where what you're focusing on today, your two nonprofits promote, and honor the promise. T- take us through first what honor the promise is and your work there. 
So we started Honor the Promise as a nonprofit back in October, and it it was truly designed to focus on long-term resiliency. There were so many organizations that were working on evacuation, and I'm, and I'm glad that those organizations exist. But Chris, where I and my colleagues, you know, people like Ashley Sogi, who is a former Army Civil Affairs officer, she spent time working on the Syrian refugee crisis in uniform, where our passion really, really was focused and is still focused is, yeah, but what happens when you get them here? <laughs> and there are a lot of organizations that were involved in evacuation who are still involved in advocating for evacuation, but Chris, they're not doing much on the resettlement and the resiliency side. What I mean by that is they got people out, but they're not helping them day to day here. And I think you do have an obligation to support the people that you brought over here. Uh, and so for us, it was, well, who's gonna care about them five years down the road? Who's gonna care about them 10 years down the road? And so we see this as a marathon and not a sprint. So what do we do? We're really focused on four lines of effort. Holistic health, which is how do we just get you well in every sense of the world? Financial wellness, mental health, uh, everything that you and your kids need to actually be healthy in this country. And there's a fantastic organization that I have to make a plug for. They're called the, the Afghan Health Initiative. They're founded by Afghans in Kent, Washington. And they've done so much research on the social determinants of health. And so we're partnering with them to help create programming for, for our population. Uh, the other piece is community engagement. And I think this will make sense to anyone who has ever transitioned at any point in their lives is you need community. You need a sense of belonging in order to thrive. And so we wanna make sure that Afghans are connected not only to American veterans, uh, but to other members of the American community. Um, and then definitely even to other Afghans. I can't tell you the number of times we have traveled around the US and we have brought Afghans together and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that there were Afghans that lived in Dallas or in Houston. And I didn't know that these other people that I served with in Afghanistan were also evacuated. So it's really great to see that connection and that, that sense of belongingness. And then as we already touched on, very focused on workforce development. So we wanna make sure that our Afghan partners find meaningful employment Again, beyond the gig economy, we wanna make sure that they have benefits, that they have careers where they actually see some trajectory. Um, and then the last piece is youth empowerment. So I, I don't have children, but my brother has kids and I love his children as if they were my own. And I have to tell you, even if my life was great, I had everything that I needed, if anything was going on with those three children where they were unhappy, it would impact me every day. Right? because they're like little parts of my heart walking on the planet. And so I can imagine that for all of the Afghan parents that are here now, uh, they're very concerned about their children. And so we wanna make sure that kids also have access to resiliency programs and educational opportunities. So those are really our four pillars. It's gonna be a long, slow climb for us up that hill. Uh, we see Honor the Promise being an organization that lasts for many, many years uh, and really helps make sure that our Afghan partners are resilient in the U.S. And again, what's the website where people can learn more? 
honorthepromise.vet. V-E-T. V-E-T. That's right. You know, when you and I spoke last week, we mentioned how today's the one-year anniversary. And I haven't turned the news on today because the news, quite frankly, is just too depressing all the time. So I don't know if they're talking about today, but people have just forgotten about it. Yet here you are talking about five years out, 10 years out. You know, for you, with your background, with your uh, heritage, hats off to you. I mean, you've, there's got to be something special inside of you right now to make you feel uber proud of, of what you're doing, what you've accomplished. I mean, I mean, it's an incredible story. That's kind of you to say. I'm, I'm really proud of the Afghan diaspora. I'm proud of all of the Af- Afghan Americans who have just stepped up and created community and really helped their brothers and sisters that have arrived here over the last year. I'm really proud of the veteran and military spouse and military children communities. I mean, to be talking to military kids who are like filling out spreadsheets, trying to help their parents get Afghans out of Afghanistan. It's, it's amazing. It truly is. And I'm, I'm proud of the American people, frankly. I, I have a lot of sadness in my heart, obviously, today, and I have for the last year. But I'm so proud to be American in this moment. Because the American people, they really, in a way that I don't think I've ever seen for any other population that has come into the United States, they they have really opened their arms to the Afghan people. And so it's what I was saying earlier, Chris, I think the I think the American people have voted on how they feel about Afghanistan and and Afghans. That's great to hear. I, I love hearing that. So now let's talk about your other organization, how we got connected, promote. Yeah, so I, I co-founded Promote with some active duty, currently serving Army women back in 2016. And it was primarily focused on finding mentors for women in the special operations community. So at that point, there were not very many women in the US Special Operations Forces. The uh, combat ban had just been lifted right in 2015. And we knew more and more women were gonna come in to the community and we wanted to create a program so that they had the mentorship that they needed in order to thrive. But also for the women that were currently serving, we wanted to retain them, right? We wanted to make sure that they had mentors and advocates and champions. And Chris, that really comes from my own experiences. I never had any women mentors in the military. The special ops community, when I came in in 2005, uh, was predominantly male. And I was very fortunate, lucky, whatever the words are that you want to use, to have found phenomenal male mentors that were almost all operators. So SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers, national mission unit folks who just saw me, didn't care that I was any of my identifiers. And what I mean by, they didn't care that I was Afghan, they didn't care that I was Muslim, they didn't care that I was a woman. All they cared about was I looked like I was willing to work hard and I was teachable and trainable. And so uh, I had these great folks who were willing to take the time to invest in me, to make me a better officer, a better leader, a a better intel 
analyst. And I thought, I really want that for more people in the special ops community. So it started off as a mentor matching program and it just grew wings. I mean, we went from doing that to being asked by commanders and senior enlisted leaders, command sergeants, major master chiefs to come in and really do some deep work on how to make their organizations more effective, more inclusive, more diverse. And again, what was cool about this is it was all white male operators that were asking us to come in and do this work. So promote, it's like I said, I don't have any children, but that's my baby. That's my firstborn. Uh, Whereas Honor the Promise is my second. I don't think I can do a third. I think I'm tapped out with two nonprofits, but promote is, uh, is, is really the work that I, I felt this deep passion for because I had had such a great experience and I wanted more people to have that experience. So it's going great. We've sponsored numerous events across the country. We're still doing mentor matching here and there, but what we really focus on is how do we make commands and organizations better by leveraging the differences of the people inside them. You know, your people are your biggest asset. How do you take all of the smarts that they have in their brains and use them to solve complex problems? And one more time, what's the website? Promoteleadership.org. Thank you for that. So as my listeners and viewers know, I'm a very proud Syracuse Orange alum. So it pains me a little bit to go through these next highlights for you. Oh, gosh. (laughs) But you're like my little sister. So I'm going to brag on you a little bit. You've earned a master's degree from Georgetown. Boo. After receiving a bachelor's degree from Penn State, boo. Oh, mm-hmm. And you're now working on your doctorate through Arizona State University's Leadership and Innovation Program. Yes. Did you always view education as a path to personal empowerment? Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I think that if you're not a lifelong learner, you are wrong. If you're not reading or listening to books uh, routinely, you're not living right, as we talked about. Uh, and I, I set time aside every single day to improve my own understanding of what's going on in the world. And I do that by reading and listening to a lot of different sources of information rather than being stuck in an echo chamber of I'm just going to listen to the podcast or to the authors or to the news sources that I already agree with. And so I make it a point to challenge my own thinking. Uh, and so if, if you don't see yourself spending time doing that every day, then I just don't think you're a leader. I really don't. I think that leaders have to be challenged. And I think through that challenging, you learn how to be better at your, at your craft. And I think that it also allows you to create space to be questioned by your followers. So yes, education is key and you don't have to it's goodwill hunting. You know, you don't, you don't have to go to uh, a university. You can get that education at a dollar fifty in late fees at your public library, <laughs> right? How you like them apples. So yes, education comes in all kinds of forms, but I absolutely see it as a path to personal empowerment. And Chris, probably more important, I see it as a pathway for being able to help others. I think you set the record for quoting the most movies in a podcast. So I, I appreciate and, and respect that. So thank you. You're welcome. So we have just a short time remaining in our conversation. How do you get so much done in a day? What are your time management secrets? I time block everything that I do. So 
if, if I'm if I know that I'm working on my dissertation proposal, it's time blocked from 8 to 10 a.m. Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh, if I know that I've got to turn in receipts for a trip, it's time blocked from 11 to 11.15. Calendars are your friends. Uh, calendar invites are your friends. Uh, but joking aside, Chris, it's about prioritization. So I would love to sit around and watch Love is Blind on Netflix all day long. <laughs> it's not good for me. It's not good for humanity. Uh, it's not going to help me further my passions. It's not going to help me support and uplift other people. And so you have to prioritize. The Eisenhower box is a really great tool. So if it's important and urgent, do it. Um, and if it's not, stop doing it. Uh, do the things that are challenging, but helpful to society. Uh, and I really do believe, you know, Adam Grant and the research, uh, the people that are the happiest are, are in, the, in the world are the people that give to others. Uh, and so making time to take care of other people is what helps fill my cup. But I will also say this, you got to take vacation. Uh, you have to. People think that just working themselves uh, to the bone is healthy. It's not. Um, and so I'm getting ready to take vacation in a couple of weeks and God help anybody who tries to reach out. To me <laughs> I promise you, I will not. <laughs> so yeah, boundaries are good too. help others, but, but have boundaries. Lila Kostani, thanks so much for being us today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Really appreciate it. No, I, I, it was a lot of fun uh, and great to see. You, and thanks for sharing your experiences. And thank you to our audience for tuning into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.